Beruchim Abba'im, welcome everyone. It's good to see everybody again on our Tuesday class. We are in the middle of the subject of Simha. We are up to class 81. But the events that have taken place in the last few days in Eretz Israel do not allow us to continue our regular schedule. And we must take a few minutes to have a discussion amongst friends about this most difficult time that I'm sure all of us are struggling with. First of all, if a person is feeling in pain, then that should make them feel good. People, Jews who are not in pain, and I don't just mean the pain of seeing innocent people getting killed. I don't mean that kind of pain. That even a goy is capable of. It's human to see people in pain and to feel pain. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a different kind of pain. It's a kind of pain where you're not able to go through your day in the same way that you normally can. Obviously, we have responsibilities. And our life doesn't stop because we're in pain. However, definitely, there are certain things that we cannot do when we're in pain. Not because somebody says don't do it. If someone has to tell you not to do something, then there's something wrong. When a person is in pain, it's a sign of great closeness. Let's take an example. Believe it or not, that the days, the three weeks that we have before Tisha B'Av are considered days of love. It's hard to believe 
that the three weeks out of the year that we mourn are called days of love. In what way are they days of love? In fact, some say if you want to reach Hashem, you want to elevate yourself, the three weeks you can get there faster than other times. How can the three weeks be, be day, days of love? I don't know if you were around Simchat Torah, but Simchat Torah every year, you'll see thousands of people celebrating, singing, dancing, eating, drinking, smiles, happy. Simchat Torah is a very happy time. But days of happiness don't show the same love as days of pain. Let me give you a mashal. If one would go to a wedding, you'll see with the hatan dancing with him hundreds, sometimes thousands of people. Let's say the hatan was dressed like everybody else. Suit and tie, nice shoes. And you saw a thousand people dancing in that wedding. Who would you say is closest to the hatan? Who loves the hatan the most from those people? Sometimes you don't even know who the hatan is because everybody's so happy. You can't even tell who is the person getting married. And even if you knew who the hatan is, if I would ask you, who in this group of people, who in this circle loves this hatan? Who's closest to the hatan? You'd look around and you say, it's hard to know. I mean, they're all smiling. They're all dancing. How would you know who is closest to the hatan? There is no way to know by a wedding who's closest to the hatan. But when you go to a funeral, so it's very, very clear who is closest to the deceased. It's very obvious. While a thousand people might be there, but they're not crying in the same way as the close relatives. If I would go to a funeral of a thousand people who are sitting and sad and maybe even in pain, and I would tell you, tell me, who's closest to the niftar? Within seconds, you would be able to point out who in that room 
has the biggest connection. You see, times of pain show love and connection a lot more than times of happiness. So while on Simhat Torah you see everybody dancing, everybody enjoying, you can't tell who is connected, who is not connected. But when you see someone in pain, and I repeat, not the pain of, I can't believe this is happening to innocent people, not that kind of pain. The pain of, this is my family. I can't believe what just happened to my brother, to my sister, to my cousin. My day is not the same anymore. I can't do the same things I was planning today. It just seems so not appropriate. I can't go on vacation this week because I, I just, nobody has to tell me not to go. I just can't do it. It just doesn't feel right. Different kind of pain. It's the pain of a very close person that you're in pain for. If we feel that kind of pain, then we should be very proud. Proud of what? Proud that we have actually a real connection and love to the Jewish people and to our country. If a Jew today is not in pain, in real pain, so that just shows that they have what to strive for in their connection to our people. Am Yisrael is a family. We're all a family to each other. And even if sometimes during the good times, that family feeling doesn't always shine, and sometimes it gets petty, but in serious times, usually, the real love comes out. Unfortunately for some families, even in terrible times in the family, they still have petty arguments. But I've seen, and I'm sure you as well, have seen families that were not getting along. And all of a sudden, somebody got sick in the family. And all of a sudden, they became brothers again. What happened? What happened is that they were always brothers. But sometimes the world takes you to a different place and you start disconnecting from who you are. And it takes a tragedy to remind you again, oh no, this is my family. So I say once again, if we feel the pain so much that it feels wrong for us to be involved in petty things or 
and petty arguments or unnecessary things, then we should feel proud. We should be happy that we're in pain. Maybe that sounds weird to say. Once we have gotten over that hurdle, let's say we'll all say, of course, we feel pain. I know so many people this week that canceled their vacations. Not because they were told not to go. Because they couldn't go. Just, how could you go on vacation? If your sister is hostage, how is that possible? How can life be normal in the sense, the full sense of normalcy? Like I said, Life must go on. We have responsibilities. It doesn't mean we sit home and we stop living. I'm not saying that, obviously. But it's a sign of the pain, the level of pain, when there are certain things that are extra, that are petty, that are just... I just came to that now. So how does one respond to such pain? You know, pain is a reality that we feel. But pain is not the end of anything. Pain is not supposed to be the end of the line. Pain is meant to be a vehicle. And if you ask me, what's the vehicle of pain? Pain is like a car that you walk into and it takes you somewhere. Of course, we have free choice. So every time Hashem gives us a car, it's our choice. We could choose to take it north or south. It's up to us. What kind of car could you walk into when you're in pain? You can walk into the car of hopelessness where you feel down to the point where you don't look forward to anything, where you feel weak to the point that you don't want to do anything. It creates weakness, hopelessness, and fear and anxiety. That's one car you could walk into when you're in pain. When you're in pain, you have to walk into a car. It's like a call for action. I'll give you a a mashal. Imagine a person is waiting by the uh, subway station and there are trains going north and trains going south. And the person just standing on the platform. Stands for 5 minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. Trains go by. He doesn't know, should I go, not go. He stays on the platform for hours. He has a snack or two, he has a drink, he's just standing on the platform. 
And then all of a sudden they get on the loudspeaker and they say, alert, danger, there's a bomb on the platform. At this point, there's a train going north and a train going south. Staying on the platform is no longer a choice. You're going to have to go on the one or the other. You see, in life, when things are calm, and things are predictable, so we feel at ease, we have peace of mind, at least we look like we have peace of mind. And when that happens, there's another car that you walk into. When life is easy, there's also two cars. There's a car of when life is easy that you just kind of check out of life. You just become either selfish, lazy, and much more. You know, when people have everything they need, you might think they become unselfish givers that care about society and care about everybody and they sacrifice their time because they're so blessed and how much they have. But unfortunately, very often, when you have everything, you become selfish, arrogant, and all you're looking for is more honor and respect for yourself. And you become more hateful of those around you. You start to compete more and more. Or the vehicle of success could make you more appreciative of what you've been blessed with and realize, hey, there's so much more I need to do because I'm so blessed. I'm not like the guy next door. I was given so much more. Those are different cars you could walk into when you have calm in your life, blessings in your life. But when there is a moment of pain, like we're suffering now, you got to get out of the car. Whatever car you're in, you were in, you have to get out. You, can, you just can't stay where you are. It's a call for action. Maybe you've been standing on the platform for 30 years. There are people that could stand on the platform for 80 years. They're just on the platform. They're seeing trains go up. They don't walk in. They have friends. They have family. They have different signs that they see, that they feel. They have the heart. Very often the Jewish heart says to a person, come on, you could do more in your life. There's nobody in this room. There's nobody listening that hasn't had moments in their life where they felt, come on, you could do better than that. You know you can. But very often we stand on that platform. And then all of a sudden comes this big announcement. And now you're struggling. You just can't stay where you are. It's not possible. You got to get off the platform. The creator of the world basically pushes us off the platform. Where we go, which train we take, is completely up to us. 
like I said, the negative train is the train of hopelessness and fear and anxiety and all that comes with that. But there's another train. There's a train that maybe till now we weren't able to get on. Because that train needs a little more strength. You know, in life, to stay as you are doesn't require strength. To stay sitting on the couch, you don't have to use much energy. But to get up and move requires a little more. To jump requires a lot more. To run requires even more than that. When things are easy, it's hard to bring the energy level to jump on a new train. But pain has this way about it that makes you stronger. Now, it can make you stronger in your fear. And your fear could destroy you. It can make you stronger in your hopelessness and it can destroy you. The energy level of pain is higher than when things are calm. So the energy could be negative energy and could destroy the person. Or the energy could be this awesome energy that just propels the person to new heights. The pain that we feel today, after we feel good about it, demands of us to make a decision. Where are you taking this pain? Where are you channeling it? What's your response? We don't plan the calendar. Nobody thought that on Tuesday, after Simchat Torah, we will be sitting here reading Tehillim and in shock and in pain. Nobody could predict that. So if you're going to sit here and try to predict what happened, why it happened, how could it happen, you're wasting your energy today. Maybe you could think about that in a few months from now. Today you have energy that could take you so much higher as a person. You see, the Jewish response to evil is goodness. When we see savages, we become more compassionate. When we see people who don't value life, we learn how to value time even more. This is how we fight evil in this world. We fight darkness with light. That's why it says that on Hanukkah, we light like Bet Hillel. Bet Hillel says that every day you light one and add another. And you keep adding until you hit eight. Unlike others who wanted to light Eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. 
Halakha is like Bet Hillel. Do you know what that Halakha teaches us besides the Nerot Hanukkah? You know, the time of Hanukkah is the time of the darkness of the Greeks. How do you fight darkness in this world? Says Bet Shammai, you want to fight darkness? You got to bring fire, the most fire, and destroy it. After day one, you destroyed so much. Day two, you have less to destroy. Now you, at least, you need less candles. And you keep destroying with your fire until in the end you only need one candle. That's how you destroy evil. You burn it. Says Bet Hillel, no. Maybe in a different world. Not the world we live in. Says Bet Hillel, the way you burn evil is by lighting up. As you light up one day, a second day, and you keep adding more light into your life and in the life of others around you, the more light you bring into this world, automatically the darkness will fade away. That is the Jewish reaction to evil. We fight evil and darkness with light and goodness. And the light and the goodness begins right here with the person sitting on my chair. The goodness isn't out there. The goodness out there begins with the goodness in me. You know, we paid a very heavy price and we're paying a very heavy price. If we feel part of the family, then we feel there's a heavy price that we're paying. You're talking about young people, young men that didn't start even living their life, who are out there defending our family. You're talking about people who live with tremendous misirut nefesh, to live on the border. We're not talking people who live close to the end of the country, running away. You know, it feels... Feels not so good, I have to be honest. When we see Americans running away from the country, and I'm not saying we shouldn't. My own son is coming home. I'm not saying we shouldn't, that's not my point. My son has nothing to do there. But it doesn't feel good. When a few bombs go off, and dangers imminent and we're running away we're catching flights to any country we could find someone told me that they flew to India just to get here again I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that don't get me wrong but it doesn't feel good that there are people living on the border of savages across the fence every day of their lives. And we're in hotels or in yeshivas with protection 
all around us and we can't stay for a minute. Again, I repeat, it's necessary to leave if you're not doing anything there. That's not my point. But I want to feel what it's like to do what those people do. Those people put themselves right in the front lines. So we paid a heavy price and we're paying a heavy price. Who's out there fighting? My cousins, your cousins. It's family, it's fathers, it's mothers. It's young children. Today in America, an 18-year-old still, still didn't know if he's bar mitzvah yet. He's still trying to figure himself out. His responsibility for himself, I don't know which, which number to give it, but it's not very high. In Israel, an 18-year-old is, is somewhere in Gaza right now, defending us. So we're, he- we're paying a very heavy price. But at least we should get something out of it. You know, it's one thing to write a big check and to get something expensive in return. You wrote a check for $150,000. It's not easy to write a check for $150,000. But at least you got a car worth $150,000. But imagine writing a check for one fifty dollars and getting nothing. Not even charity. Not even the credit of giving someone charity. That's painful. We're writing a very big check. I don't know if we're writing it, but it's being written for us. But at the very least, we can buy something in return. At the very least, the price that we're paying, we should get something out of it. Because if we don't get something out of it, that's the worst possible scenario. In Judaism, We have a principle. The principle is that we don't control this world. But it's being controlled very well. Not everything we understand. And that's not because they don't know what they're doing. It's because we're not fully aware of everything. We don't understand everything which is okay. Our brain is very small. We're limited. We don't control what happens. But what happens is definitely something for us to grapple with and to take something from it. In a wonderful, amazing letter, I probably quote this letter a few times a year. In my opinion, it's required reading. 
for any person. It's a letter that was written by Rav Hutner, Alava Shalom. Rav Hutner was the Rosh Hashiva of Chaim Berlin here on Coney Island Avenue some years ago. And he got a letter from a student who was struggling. It doesn't say exactly what he was struggling with. But the message is the same. And he says a line over there. That's such a powerful line. And you have to have these words etched in your mind for life. Because they're so powerful. They're so empowering. He writes to this student in his letter, amongst other things. He says, you know, when you have troubles in life, when tzarot, times of sorrow, come into a person's life, whether it's a personal sorrow or it's a national sorrow, he says, it's like rehem legadlut. He says, he calls it like rehem. Rehem is the womb of a woman. A mother has the womb. That's where the baby, the fetus, grows and eventually comes out. Says Rav Hutner, when you go through a difficult time of pain, you have to look at yourself like you're in the rehem, like you're in the womb of a mother, legadlut, for greatness. What does he mean by that? So I'm going to explain to you what he means, or at least what I think he means. We're used to the scene, so it doesn't really amaze us. But imagine you weren't used to it. Imagine you never saw it. Imagine for the first time in your life, you saw somebody get married. This beautiful woman get married. And all of a sudden, after a few months, her husband notices something wrong. She's gaining weight. Her face begins to get a little bit puffier. Her moods get out of control. He says, what happened to the woman that I married? Where'd she go? And she says, I, I don't know. She doesn't know. She never saw this before. I don't know. What's going on? I don't know. Let's go to the doctor. Let's see. I don't know. Okay, maybe next week we'll get better. It gets worse. Okay, maybe next month. Okay, maybe it was a bad month. It gets worse. And she keeps expanding in all different ways. And the moods get worse. Now she can't even walk normally. He says, who did I get married to? Mekah ta'ut. You know mekah ta'ut is? Is when you make a deal with somebody. They told you I'm buying, I'm selling you a 40 by 100. You go there, it's only a 20 by 100. It's 
called a mistake in the sale. You get your money back. Husband says, Mekah ta'ut. This is not who I said, Hare'at Mekudesh at That's what would happen. You're laughing. That's what would happen after eight, nine months. That's what's going on in the rahim. And all of a sudden, if they stick it out, they get the most precious gift. A new light enters their home that they never could dream of. That's the beginning of life. The beginning of life comes from a an uncomfortable expansion. It doesn't feel great. It doesn't look great. But it makes something very special. Oh, it's so worth it. I bet no woman would like to be pregnant. But it's worth it. After you get the box. Rav Hutna says, when a person has a personal, family, national challenge, a time of difficulty, it's like the pregnancy of greatness. It's a person who is being cooked for something greater than what was. If they only ride in the right vehicle. Rehem lagadlut. This line, these two words, we should memorize and never forget them. Because life comes with all kinds of sorrow. Not always are they as big as it is now. But sorrow, while it's painful and we don't wish for it and we don't want it, but it's very precious when it's turned to something beautiful. A pregnant woman may complain for nine months, but, but after the baby's there, it's worth it. Rehem lagadlut. There's no question that our people today, each and every one of us, are experiencing this uncomfortable rehem. And we must capitalize. Actually, this is the way God made the world. We're going to read Sefer Bereshit this coming Shabbat. We're going to start with the first parasha. And in the first parasha, there's going to be something shocking. Maybe we're so used to it that we're not going to be shocked. That's why you have to learn everything new again. You can't rely on what you learned when you were in school. You're a different person today. The first day of creation, after God finished the day, 
So the Pasuk says, Vayhi Erev, Vayhi Boker, Yom Echad. It was night, and then it was day, one day. The next day, same. Vayhi Erev, Vayhi Boker, Yom Sheni. This is why we start our day at night. Shabbat begins Friday night into the day and finishes the next night. We don't start in the morning and finish by the end of the night. How do we know that? Because Vayhi Erev, Vayhi Boker. The day begins at night. If you get married on Tuesday night, so in the Ketubah, they're going to write Wednesday. Because it's the next day already. How do I know? Vayhi Erev, Vayhi Boker. So it's nice to know that, but it's shocking to know that. What's shocking about it? Think about how we look at the relationship of day and night. If I would ask you as a simple human being, tell me, why did God make day and night? And which order should they be in? So just from simple thinking, you don't have to be a genius. You say, well, during the day, we work hard. We sweat, we toil, we do. And then we need rest. Imagine you just kept going without stopping. You'd fall apart. You'd fall on your face after a couple of days. So the creator of the world did a kindness for us. He shut the lights. So that we can go to rest and go to sleep. It was a hard day. We need energy for the next day. According to that understanding, surely it should have been Vayhi Boker, Vayhi Erev. Why would God create the Erev first? Nobody did anything yet. Why would you start the day when you're sleeping? That should be the end of the previous day. The answer to this question is so relevant to us. What the Creator is telling you and I is that the light of morning will always come from the darkness of the night. That's why it says in the morning prayers, Yotzer or Hashem forms the light. Pay attention to this. He forms the light. Ubore Hoshech. And he creates darkness. Notice, and it's good for this week's parasha, there's a difference between the word bore, bereshit bara, and yotzer. Bara means creating from nothing. Something we never saw in our lives. Something from nothing. We never saw that. Yotzer means we take something that's there and we shape it, we build it. Listen to what we say every morning. Yotzer or Hashem shapes the light. Ubore hoshech. And He creates darkness. If anything, you would think the opposite. Darkness is the absence of light. And if it's going to be Yotzer, you would think, you would think, excuse me, it would be Hashem created, forgive me, one more time. 
you would think he's Boreor. Hashem created the light. Why do we say Yotzer Or? I heard once a beautiful explanation to this. That Hashem made the darkness and you know where the light is? It's in the darkness. Hashem is Bore Hoshech. He creates darkness and the light is in the darkness. You have to form it from the darkness. That's the way of the world. You know, you have to peel the fruit before you get to the sweetness inside. Why did Hashem make the peel like that? Because that's the way of the world. You got to get past the peel to get to the sweetness before the rain that blesses the world comes. There are clouds. There are storms. And then the rain comes to give blessing. That's the way the world runs. It is that way in creation. It is that way in our personal lives. There isn't a person that you've ever met I believe, and if there is, they're from the minority that has grown in life and accomplished and done things, great things that built a legacy in their life that didn't have to go through some sort of darkness. Unfortunately, people who have everything, like I mentioned before, don't wake up one day and say, well, let's build hospitals for children. They don't do that. You know who builds hospitals for children? Usually someone who has a sick child. You know who opened up a special needs school? Someone who had probably someone in their family. When there is a darkness, then you create light. That's why the Pasuk says, when Am Yisrael has an Ait Sarah, they have a moment of sorrow. Doesn't say they will see salvation. And from it, from the Tzara, they will see the salvation. That's why David Melech. You'll find him in Tehillim singing all over the place. In places that are not even, don't even make sense. He writes a song while he's running away and he is in the desert of Yehuda. Have you ever visited the desert of Yehuda? Even today, the desert of Yehuda is a desolate place. There's nothing there. The man is running away, he's in the desert. What does he do? He writes a song. He sings. Mizmor le David. The song of David. Bihiyoto bemidbar Yehuda. While he is running away in the desert, scared for his life from his enemies, who knows if he'll get water to drink? Who knows if he'll have food to eat? Who knows if he'll survive one more hour? What's he doing? He's singing. The Zohar says, what's going on? Who sings in that situation? 
says the Zohar, the Af al-Gav, even though he was Betsa'ar, he sang to Hashem. But my question is why? Why is that a time to sing? Perhaps when you realize that there is a great purpose to pain. That realization in itself is a reason to sing. It's not a song that you want to sing. But given the situation, if you feel in pain today, you should feel happy. And if you know that you need to turn the pain to something greater, the greater you, then you could start singing. David Amir says, I'm in Midbar Yehuda, and I realize that there's something here for me, that I need to step up from my platform. That deserves a song. Mizmor le David. Everybody here could write a song today if they are willing to get something for the price that's being paid. That's why David Melech himself says, Even ma'asu habonim. He says in life, the bonim, the builders, they sometimes they see a stone, and when they see that stone, they say, Ah, why did they deliver that stone to us? That's not going to help in our building. Even ma'asu habonim. The builders sometimes see a stone and they say, Ah, oh, that stone is disgusting. It's not for our building. Hayeta lerosh pina. Says David Melech, the stones of life that you think are not so beautiful, they can be rosh pina. They can be the most beautiful and important stone in your life. The bonim are not the builders of buildings. They're the builders of lives. Each and every one of us is building a life. Every day we build. Every week we're building. Sometimes we see a stone that we don't like. That bothers us. But David Melech would tell you, that stone can become Rosh Pina. It could become the most special stone in your life that one day your grandchildren will ask you, Grandma, Grandpa, you're such a great person. You're not like an average person. You're a special human being in so many ways. Your unselfishness, your love of people, your kindness, your wisdom, your connection to Hashem, your family that you built, the marriage that you have. Grandpa, what? How'd you do that? And you're going to show them the stone that wasn't so beautiful when you got it. It became the most beautiful stone in your life. That's why David Melech says in Tehillim, Tzarot levavihir hibu. We've said this more than once. But it's worth saying again. This is in Perek 25 in Tehillim. 
Simply it means, the way people read it usually is, the sorrow of my heart has become wide. Which means I have so many problems. Hashem, take me out of my distress. But the Malbim says, no, no, no. Wrong explanation. That's not what David was saying. He wasn't complaining that he has too many tzarot. Says David Amelech, the opposite. Tzarot kama. When sorrow comes into our lives, tzarot, you know what they do? They make us bigger. Our hearts become open. All of a sudden we love people that we didn't like before. All of a sudden we don't care about the silly things that we were fighting about yesterday. All of a sudden our tefillot get stronger. Our commitment gets better. All of a sudden our life starts to upgrade. Tzarot levavi hirhevu. Hashem, I don't complain about Sarot because I know they open me and make me bigger. Just, I don't want stress. I want to be able to use the Tzara to turn it into something beautiful. That's why, by the way, in Hebrew, such a beautiful connection that the word Tzara, which means sorrow, is the same word as the word Surah which means to shape something. So interesting that shaping and sorrow are the same word. You know why? Because there's nothing that shapes a person more than a tzara. A tzara shapes us. It makes us greater if we step on the right car. I once heard a beautiful line. I don't know who said it. But the line says, Adversity introduces a man to himself. You know, in life very often we live in a dream world. We live in an illusionary island of... We think that popularity is making us greater people, happier people, accomplished people. We think that money is the end all. And many other things that we get caught in. Adversity has a way of introducing a person to themselves. It says, hello, here is their new you or the real you. I just want to finish off. By telling you what I think is not so difficult, I think anybody here could probably sit here and say this. You'll forgive me for saying the obvious, but sometimes even the obvious has to be said. But more importantly, the obvious has to be practiced. Sometimes things are so obvious that nobody pays attention to them because they're so obvious. You hear a big haydush, you say, oh, go get that one. That's, wow, I never knew that. Let me try that one. When things are obvious, people just move on. 
We just read this week. Vezot ha Moshe Rabbeinu gave us blessings. No better source in the history of mankind than the Beracha of Moshe Rabbeinu. Vezot ha Here is the blessing of Moshe Rabbeinu. That's the first pasuk in the parasha, introducing the Beracha. And then you, you read the next four pasukim, there's no Beracha. There's no blessing. It talks about other things. Why would you introduce the blessing and go to a different subject and then come back to the blessing in the sixth pasuk? What Rashi tells us is that Moshe Rabbeinu is telling you that even my beracha has no value if you don't have the capability of storing it. The best wine poured in a bottle with a hole has no value. Even if the bottle will be beautiful on the outside, but if it has a hole, it's not going to make it. So the first four Pesukim is telling you before the blessing what you need to have before the blessing. What is it that a Jew needs to have to be able to have the blessing of Moshe Rabbeinu. So two things. Two things are discussed there. Maybe more, but I'm going to discuss two. The first one is, he talks about how Am Yisrael, by Matan Torah, when Hashem offered the Torah to us, we said, Naase Venishma. We are committed and we're ready to learn so we can do. That made our people worthy of the blessings of Moshe Rabbeinu. I say to you, this event happened 40 years before that. You know what they've been doing for 40 years? They've been learning Torah, doing mitzvot in the desert. But that didn't get them the blessing. How many mitzvot were they doing when they said Naaseh Nishma? Answer is none yet. So how could Naaseh Nishma, the proclamation of I am ready to marry you. Could you imagine? There's a couple that gets married. They married for 50 years. And the husband gets up and says, you know what the greatest moment of this marriage was? When I said, Hare at Mekodeshetli, I am committed fully to you and to your happiness. That's what it means, by the way, when you're committed in a, in, a, in a marriage. It doesn't mean just committed to give money or committed to cook. That's not what it means. Those are like, those are side points. The commitment is a very simple commitment. Every Married person should know this, and all the more so if they're not married yet. The commitment of a marriage is that from now on, your happiness is my responsibility. How many times have you seen a spouse unhappy and say, Okay, good for them, what can I do? <laughs> it's their problem, what should I do? 
I did my best. Can't do it. And maybe sometimes you can't. But you have to know when you committed to marriage, it means I'm committed to do whatever I can to make you a happy person. Part of that is giving you food. Part of that maybe is cooking. Part of that is, yes. But that's, those are just, just vehicles. The main point is I'm committed. Your happiness is my responsibility. So if you're not happy one morning, it's my responsibility. If I'm not happy, I feel my responsibility to myself. But now all that I got married, if the other person's not happy, I feel responsible. Maybe, maybe I'm not doing something right. Maybe it's not what I didn't do. Maybe it's, excuse me, it's not what I did. Maybe it's what I didn't do. Maybe I'm not supported enough. Maybe I'm not appreciative enough. Maybe I don't show it enough. Maybe, who knows what? That's what a commitment is. Could you imagine a husband getting up in the 60th anniversary? They're 85 years old now. And he says, I want to tell you the greatest moment of our marriage. The greatest moment of our marriage when, when I told my dear wife, Hare at mekudeshatli. That's your greatest moment in marriage? You've been married for 60 years. You had so many children. You had so many good times together. You did so many beautiful things. What are you talking about? How many things did you accomplish when you told her, at that point, I'm committed to you? You didn't do anything yet. You didn't build anything yet. You didn't give anything to each other yet. You didn't have a child yet. You didn't share a family yet. What are you talking about? How could that be the greatest moment in your marriage? It's startling, really. Moshe Rabbeinu says, you know what makes you Am Yisrael? Ready for this blessing? Not 40 years of learning Torah, 40 years of Hesed, 40 years of mitzvot, 40 years of tefillot, 40... No, none of that. It's when you told Hashem, I am committed to this marriage. At that point, nothing happened yet. The greatest moment in our history, which makes us worthy of a blessing of Moshe Rabbeinu. What an unbelievable piece of information this is. And I'm going to tell you why it's unbelievable. It's so relevant to us. You'll forgive me if this comes out the wrong way, because it's not meant to. It's meant to educate and to open hearts and open minds. But there's so many of us, so many, that do mitzvot, how many mitzvot do you do every day? I bet there are too many to count. Kibud avaem, your hesed, your tefillot, your tehillim, your mitzvot, your shabbat, taking care of your family and your cousins and strangers. Hachnasat orhim. How many mitzvot do you do every day? There's no question, there are too many to count. But I, I will tell you, you could live an entire life as a Jew doing thousands of mitzvot a day. And not once, not once, did you say, Na'aseh Nishma. Not one time. You never told the creator of the world, 
just like your great-grandpa and my great-grandpa did. That's how we began this nation. Our nation didn't begin on a trial. Hashem didn't say, oh, you want to see how it is? Want to check it out first? Let's see how the marriage is for a couple of years. And then we'll have a wedding. Let's see how it goes first. I mean, seemingly, would have been much safer, don't you think? If we can get married for a couple of years on trial. And after that, we can decide. But the Creator says, no. You can't get married like that. How come you can't get married on trial? Because the commitment is the source of power. Because someone who's married without a commitment will ultimately fail one way or another. You can't build an awesome marriage. You can't have the strength to build a marriage as a five-star marriage. Not a four-star, not a three-star. Not a good, not decent. A lot of people have decent. Today, people are very proud if they have a decent marriage. Say, how's your marriage? Decent. And like, they're saying it with like, such smiles on their face. Yeah, it's decent. But since when do we get married to be decent? Unfortunately, because of the destruction of the home in the streets, if you just stay married, already you feel like you're in Gan Eden. And if it's decent, then you're like in this next level of Gan Eden. But it's not meant to be decent. It's meant to be Gan Eden. It's meant to be a different life, a different world. It's, marriage is meant to be a life of pleasure. In so many aspects. But that can never happen. Because you need a lot of strength to be able to get to such a marriage. And that strength isn't available until you make a full commitment. I am fully committed to make you the happiest person in the world. I am committed, not an American commitment. <laughs> the American commitment is, guy tells you, I'll try, it means for sure not. <laughs> I know all the answers. So you come in tomorrow morning, I'll try. Means, like why'd you even ask? That's what it means. If he tells you yes, it means no. Ba'ezat Hashem is also for sure not. That's like, okay, if Hashem, if Hashem wakes me up, throws me out of bed, and somehow I get it on a drone to shul, I'll get it. American commitment is, is not a commitment. You know how people commit to projects? Go try, open up a project tomorrow. Do a trial. Don't rely on me. Tomorrow, open up this awesome organization and invite people to get involved. Opening day. We need volunteers. We need people. As many as we can get. Big projects. You know how many people you'll get the first day? You'll fill up 10 rooms like this if you know how to get to them. You know what happens the second day? You need half the size of this room. <laughs> and by the fourth week, you're almost out of business. 
Well, what happened to the commitment? Answer is you never committed. It's not that you committed and didn't hold up to it. You never committed. A real commitment. Imagine a hatan and kala under the hubah. They make a real commitment to each other. That no matter what, no matter what the circumstance, I am fully committed. My new life mission is that you should be the happiest person as much as I can control it. What? Wow, that's power. That commitment can create Gan Eden. Without a commitment, it'll never work. That's why marriage on trial can happen. A commitment is the key to a great marriage. Yes, grandpa gets up and says, you know what the greatest moment in our marriage was? That commitment under the Hubba. We made a real commitment. And everything you see of the last 60, 70 years, everything you see was from that moment. That is real. That's the story of every single one of us. We may be doing a lot of great things in our lives. And it's praiseworthy. And of course, we love each other. And Any small thing that we see in each other, we praise the other person. But you have to remember something. That the greatest moment in your life with your relationship to Hashem is the day you committed to Him. Did you have that day? Did you ever say, Naseb and Ishma? Did you ever say it? Not like an American. Did you ever say, Naseb and Ishma? Creator of the world, you made me, you created me, you gave me opportunities, you made me part of Am Yisrael. I am committed to you. I just need to know what to do now. How many people do you know that do so much good in their life, observant in so many ways, but not one time turn to the Creator and says, I'm committed. If you don't have that moment, then it's no wonder you can't find the strength for certain things. No wonder that you don't find the ability. You never made the commitment. So yes, it's appropriate that Moshe Rabbeinu says, forget the 40 years in the desert. Forget what we accomplished. Forget all that. that of course, that's beautiful. But where did it come from? Adonai misinai ba. You know the blessing comes from? From our commitment a naseh nishmat moment. I met someone a few weeks ago. A very wonderful person. I was just talking to them. Just I haven't seen him in a while. And he says, I want to tell you something. I want to thank you, he says. Once we were on a Shabbat together somewhere. And I spoke about this concept. I went home that night and I realized, you know, I really never said Naseb and Ishma. I never did that in my life. I'm a good person. I do so much good, but I never said that. 
the foundation of our entire religion is based on those two words. That's why, by the way, every day we put on tefillin. The first one is on the arm. And the second one is on the head. You know what that represents? The one on the arm is na'aseh. That's our commitment to do. And then on the head is nishma. Now we need to learn. Every day we make that proclamation. She said, I went home. I said, how could it be? But I'm living for 40 years. I never once did that. And she said that I tried to do it. And I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. And at that moment I realized that I really wasn't committed. And it kept bothering me for days. And there was a moment that I got the strength. I gathered it all together. I closed the door in my room. It was only me and my creator. She says, with tears in my eyes. I can't even imagine this. This is a married woman with a beautiful family. A married woman that you would see and you would say, a tzaddeket, a righteous woman. But she never said, Moshe Rabbeinu says, the key to the blessing of a Jew is the commitment of Naseh Nishma. Did you have your Naseh Venishmat moment? It's a question that we're being forced to think about, at least one of them. And the last one, this I really am. I tell you many times, if you have to leave, just go. <laughs> I'll just talk into the camera, it's fine. There's no pressure. I know I talk, I talk for a long time. The other thing we find in Moshe Rabbeinu's words, he says, Vayhi bishurun melech. When does the melech, when does Hashem enter our midst? Yeshurun is Am Yisrael, it's called Yeshurun. When does the melech get Close to our people. Vayhi bishurun melech. When? Behit asef rashe'am yahad shiftei Yisrael. When we become one people. When we gather and we become one. Now let me explain. One doesn't mean that I agree with everything you do. And one could also mean, I'm going to get up and say, what she did was wrong. Could be. One doesn't mean I'm not allowed to comment or defend myself. Let's say you're hurting my family, but you're my sister. I'm allowed to step in and say, you can hurt my family. 
it means we could argue. But we have to argue like family. I, I, I feel horrible that I have to say this to my sister. It kills me. It kills me that I have to say that about my brother. I have a brother that's off the dead. He's so off. He's got tattoos all over him. He's got... My son says, can I, you think we should hang out, me and my brother? And I say, no, I don't, I don't think you should hang out with your brother. I don't say that with happiness. You say it with tears in your eyes. Yeah, there are Jews that are lost. Sometimes their fault, sometimes not their fault. And maybe we have to argue and maybe we have to even fight sometimes. There's no choice. But you're fighting with a brother. You don't go home and say, Ah, oh, I won, I killed him. I beat him. It says that Yaakov Avinu was punished. Why? Because when he took Dina, when they were going to see Isav, he was scared that Isav would take Dina. What did he do? He put her in a box. To hide her from Isaf. Says he was punished. And our rabbis says, how could he be punished? Why would he want Dina to marry Isaf Arasha? How could that be a bad thing? One rabbi says beautifully, it's not that he put her in the box, but he slammed it too tight, too strong. He went, ah, no, no, you should, it's your brother. You should want her to marry your brother. It's unfortunate she can't. The difference when you argue and fight with a brother. He's still your brother. At the end of the fight you say, I'm sorry I had to do this, but I love you. And I, I'll, I'll help you if I can. I can't always help you, but I will if I can. Unity doesn't mean we all become one opinion, one everything. It doesn't mean that. It means that we feel like a family. Yahad shiftei Yisrael. That is one of the conditions for a Jew to get the blessings of God and the blessings of Moshe Rabbeinu. You have to feel one with the Jewish people. How far does this go? The Pasuk says, it's an amazing Pasuk. Pasuk says, Havur atzabim Ephraim. If Ephraim, if the Jewish people are serving idols, Listening? They're serving idols. The worst sin in Judaism. You're serving idols. But Havur. But they're doing it as a family. Hanachlo. Hashem says, just leave them. He's not saying it's a great thing to serve idols together. But he's saying you still could get the Berach. Because at least you're acting like my family. Halak <laughs> Libam. But you start arguing with each other. Now, there's no protection. Family means we feel family with every single Jew. That was, by the way, Haman HaRasha's biggest weapon. You know what he told Ahashverosh? He told him, Yeshno Am Ehad there is one nation, Mefuzar Mforad Ben Amin. He's a 
dispersed throughout your kingdom. So our rabbis ask, what's wrong with that? If you have one nation that's united and that can get together, that could be a dangerous nation. But when one nation is dispersed in 127 countries, that's the best thing in the world. Why is that scary? That's great. They have no power. They're all over the place. So Gemara says, no, no, it's not what he was saying. He says, the Ehad, Hashem Ehad, Yeshno is the Shon Yashen. He's sleeping. You know why? Because Am Yisrael is Mefuzarum Forad. When we don't act like brothers, then we lose our father. You have to remember that. When we don't act like brothers and sisters, then we lose our father. When we act like brothers and sisters, we may not be doing the right things, but we still have a father. Haman says to Ahasuerus, this is a great time. You want to get these people? Perfect time. Their, their creator is God. Don't you think our enemies know that today? They themselves say it. When they see brothers fighting, again, brothers could argue and even demonstrate. But when they see brothers fighting like they're rivals and they want to kill each other, there's no more protection. That's a reality. It's not just on a national level, it's that way on a family level as well, on a, com- on a shul, on a community level. Ahdut means we live with the family feeling. doesn't mean we could always do for each other or agree, but we're family. Moshe Rabbeinu says, Yahad Shiftei Yisrael, when we feel that way, Hashem is the Melech, He's with us. And sometimes when we're not acting like brothers, it takes an enemy to remind us that we're brothers. Did anyone ask this week if the people that passed away were Ashkenazim or Sfaradim? Did you ever see in the newspaper how many Ashkenazim there were? How many people were wearing hats or they were wearing a kippah sruga? How many were uh, the religious or secular? Did you, did you see anywhere statistics? Did it matter to anybody? Who these people were and what they were doing in their lives? No. You know why? Because our enemy doesn't differentiate. He doesn't care. To him... If you're wearing this or that, if you're doing that or that, it's all the same because you're one family. It takes the enemy to remind us that we're a family. And each person has to do whatever they can in their own family before we could solve the national problem. And we should pray for that kind of feeling that we should have for each other. These are the two Prerequisites of Beracha. Na'aseh Nishma is a commitment to Hashem. And Yahad Shifte Yisrael. We should be together. We will all look back at these days and not remember the horrific scenes that we see, but remember 
the source of the greatness that we will be able to see in our lives going forward. Baruch Amen ve'amen.